The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 122. So if you got a Bible, I'll give you a second to get there. One. Psalm 122, a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Okay, we are in Deuteronomy 32, verses 23 through 33 today. All right, this is the Song of Moses, part 4. And we're starting in 22, yes, 32, starting verse 23. Where is it? Okay, so before I do this, um, these, especially these Deuteronomy sermons from the Song of Moses have a lot of structures in them that are uh, kind of hard to imagine. You can't really place them in your head unless you see them before you, okay? And so, I'm sorry, I lost my concentration because mom was sneaking around here doing something. Um, anyway, um, we have um, uh, Jim. In case you are watching online and you want a copy of it, Jim every week sends out the sermons in advance so that you can pull them out and read them along with the uh, sermon on Sunday morning. Okay? And so, if you would like to do that, let me know. I can give you Jim's email address and he can add you to that list. But that way you can follow along. And if there's something complicated or I'm talking about a certain structure, you're not going to know what I'm talking about unless you have that in front of you. He can make that possible. So just keep that in mind. If you want the, uh, the weekly sermon, Jim sends him out. He's not here today. He's sick. But I'm sure that he's just fine at home watching right now and taking notes. Okay. So uh, having said that, we're in uh, starting in verse 23 today. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within for the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men. Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is high, and it is not the Lord who has done all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them? And the Lord had surrendered them. For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. 
for their vine is the vine of Saddam and the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Okay, once again, before I give this, I am reading the words of Moses. These are the words that are given from the Lord through Moses. I'm just saying this now so that if somebody is tuning into this sermon for the first time, they've never listened before, and they hear me saying things about Israel, and they say, well, this guy's just an Israel hater. It's not me that's saying these things. I am analyzing these things. I don't know another person on the planet that supports Israel as much as I do. There may be people as much, but not more. There's my last prayer every single night. Pray for Israel. Okay, pray for the people that their eyes will be open to Jesus. But I did not write these words, okay? In some of our verses today, Moses, speaking as the Lord, says that he would have utterly eradicated Israel if it were not for the sake of the enemies misunderstanding what had taken place and why. As such, the Lord would have to put up with the boasting of the enemies as it would be an indication to them that he is not what the Bible portrays him to be. Obviously, the Lord has already proclaimed that regardless of their actions, Israel would be kept as a people. But the Song of Moses highlights the keeping of Israel for this particular reason as well. When considering this, one cannot help but think of the words of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, as called out by the Rav Shakeh to the people of Jerusalem. That's our text first for today from 2 Kings 18 verses 34 and 35. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hena and Iva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all of the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? In response to this degrading talk, Hezekiah went before the Lord with the words of Sennacherib and prayed to him. His concluding words were, Now therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Should Sennacherib have prevailed and utterly destroyed Israel, the words of the Lord as conveyed by Moses would have been exactly what would have come to pass. As this is so, is this thought any less true today? Absolutely not. Despite what replacement theologians say, the keeping of Israel is intimately connected with the honor of the Lord. And that truth is no more poignantly highlighted than in the supposedly sacred, but actually satanic book known as the Hadith from a website about Islam Q&A. We read the following. It is narrated in the Hadith that the prophet, meaning Muhammad, said the hour will not begin until you fight the Jews until a Jew will hide behind a rock or a tree, and the rock or tree will say, O Muslim, O slave of Allah, here is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. There are three possibilities with this. One, either the Bible is true and the Hadith is false, or two, the Bible is false and the Hadith is true, or three, both are false. A fourth option is not possible, that of both being true. As such, Israel would be kept as a people forever. And the Lord has demonstrated that he is God, or Israel will someday be eradicated, and Moses is wrong. Logically following that, then, would be that the Lord is not God. 
There is a whole lot tied up in the preservation of Israel if one understands the words of the books of Moses. It is truly unfortunate that replacement theology has arisen in this world. Those who hold to it actually place the integrity of the Bible on the same par as Israel's enemies, even if they don't intentionally do so. The result is the same. Let us be sound in our thinking and not get caught up in strange teachings that do not accurately reflect what God is doing in redemptive history. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got three thoughts for you today. The first is amassed evils. It's verses 23 through 25. Since verse 19, the poem has highlighted the results of Israel's abandonment of the Lord. In response to that, Moses has highlighted the Lord's rejection of them. Since verse 20, Moses has been writing in the first person as if his words are those of the Lord Jehovah. That continues now, referring to his rejection of them, his turning from them, and his judgment upon them. However, verse 21 alluded to his plan to lure Israel back to himself through his active turning to another group of people. We saw that last week. While that has been occurring, the devastations upon Israel continue today. They are words of terrifying disaster that accurately, but most mournfully, reflect the state of the people of Israel since their rejection of him at the time of their visitation by Christ Jesus. With that understood, the words of Jehovah continue. Verse 23, I will heap disasters on them. Aspe alemo raot. I will amass upon them evils. One can imagine sheets of paper, each with a different evil written upon it, being torn off of the stack and simply tossed onto the land. With the coming of each sheet, another disaster arrives. Soon, the land and the people are completely destroyed, and nothing is left but the sheets of doom lying in heaps, testifying against the people. They have done evil before the Lord in defiance of his word, and so he sends forth his word to testify against them. As it comes, so come the evils he has promised. They are piercing, and they are deadly. Verse 23 continues, I will spend my arrows on them. Hitsai akale bam, my arrows I will expend in them. Whereas the Lord amasses evils upon the people as if they are coming down from above, it now says he expends all of his arrows in them as if he is standing amongst them and shooting at one after another directly until all his arrows are gone. The arrow in this case signifies a plague of some sort. The word is being used metaphorically, as can be seen from Ezekiel chapter 5. Here's what it says there. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. Even Job, a man outside of the covenant people, understood the symbolism. Here's what he says. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. An interesting internal A-B-C-C-A-B structure is provided with this verse. A, I will amass, and then that corresponds to the next clause in I will expend. B, upon them, and that would be corresponding to in them, and then evils would be my arrows. But it reads, I will amass upon them evils, my arrows I will expend in them. A, B, C, C, A, B. 
These evils and arrows are defined by the words of the coming verses. Verse 24, they shall be wasted with hunger. The entire verse is direct, and it calls for the mental insertion of prepositions and verbs that Moses simply leaves out. That begins with the first clause, maze ra'av, emaciated, hunger. The adjective maze is found only here in the Bible. It comes from an unused root signifying to suck out. Thus, one can think of people that are simply skin and bones, as if a straw was inserted into them and their body fat and muscle were sucked out. The only thing left of them is a state of agonizing hunger. It is perfectly suited as a description of the condition of the people when the Nazi death camps were liberated. So starved were the people that when soldiers showed them a kindness by offering them a candy bar or some other food from their kits, some of the people's bodies went into shock and they died. An act of tender kindness turned into an unintended sentence of death. Next, the horror of the arrows progresses. Verse 24 continues, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. And consumed fever and depletion bitter. Two new nouns are spoken forth. The first is reshef. It comes from saraf, meaning to burn. Thus, it is that which burns like a hot coal. In this case, I would think it is referring to an intense fever resulting from the emaciation. The second word is ketev. This comes from an unused root meaning to cut off. Thus, it is a state of ruin. To maintain it as a noun, I have said depletion. Again, one can think of the horrors of the concentration camps and other such times of immense deprivation that have come upon the people as history is recorded. The people claim to be Jews, they claim to be united to the Lord, and yet they have all but ignored him. The wounds, though stated as active events coming from the Lord, are actually self-inflicted wounds. They are the inevitable consequences of their failure to respond favorably to him. Having said that, look at America. But again, the Lord next states that these are a direct punishment from his hand. Verse 24 continues, I will also send against them the teeth of beasts. Making the words more pronounced, the word is singular, tooth. It is a way of uniting all teeth of every formidable beast into one giant weapon. Veshen behemot ashalach bam. And fang beasts I will send in them. The fang, the tooth, becomes a symbol for the chaos it wreaks. One can think of tearing flesh, blood, bits of bone and hair, all being openly displayed among the people. It is a horrifying thought of appalling devastation. And that terrifying weapon is a companion in its destructive purposes. Verse 24 going on with the poison of serpents of the dust. Im hamat zochale afar, with a burning, reptiles, dust. The word translated as a burning is given to signify the state that occurs when bitten. Thus, venom or infection is to be understood. The next word, zahal, is new. It comes from a verb meaning to shrink back or to crawl away, as if being shy or afraid. As other words are translated as snake and serpent, I chose the word reptile, because other reptiles also have bites that cause a burning of the body through venom or infection. The translation of the New King James Version is less literal, but I do admit it is more understandable. I'm guessing on the structure of this verse, I couldn't really figure it out, but the use of the connecting conjunctions is most notable. A-A-B-B is what I think it is. Emaciated hunger and 
consume fever and depletion bitter. B, and fang beasts I will send in them. B, with a burning, reptiles dust. The terrors come from all directions. They come from above and from within. They come in many forms and they come with a variety of horrors. But more is yet ahead and they will be indiscriminate in who they come against. Verse 25, the sword shall destroy outside. Michutz tesachel cherev, from out shall bereave sword. In other words, the terror from outside is the sword that will leave a person childless, be it in war, enemy attack, looters, or whatever. There will be danger on the outside that will leave the parent childless. And more, verse 25 continues, there shall be terror within. It is a plural noun followed by another noun, umechadarim ema, and from inner chambers, dread. This is set in contrast to the previous clause. Outside there is one place where there is bereavement. However, any place inside, as indicated by the plural, is a place of dread. This is comparable to the curses of Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, 65 through 67. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, oh, that it were evening. And at evening you shall say, oh, that it were morning. Because of the fear which terrifies your heart and because of the sight which your eyes see. And these terrors will be, verse 25 continues, for the young man and the virgin. Gambachur, gambetula. Also young man, also virgin. It speaks of those who are young with their entire lives ahead of them. They may be innocent to the things of the world, but the world is there to devour them. While they think that a long and full life lies ahead, the termination of their days is at hand. It is like considering the tragedy of a man ready to be married, but who is then called up for the draft. Before the happiness can be realized, only sadness and loss are experienced. Further, verse 25 continues, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. Because this is a verb and two nouns, it was hard to give the same structure in the English. Yonek im ish seva, suckling with man advancement. That's the best I could do for you. The word seva signifies being gray and thus old. The word advancement is the only noun I thought accurately matches what is said here while still conveying the intent. This is then said against the young man and the virgin those who are much less developed and those who are much more developed, even from the very beginning of life to the very ending of it, are not exempt from what is promised to come upon the people. This is an AABB structure, but it has a little bit more inside of it that I put at the end for you to see. From out shall bereave sword. It's a location with a result. A again. And from inner chambers, dread. A location and a result. And then B, also young man, also virgin. It's a comparison. And then B again, suckling with man advancement. You're making a comparison. It is rather amazing to see the variety of poetic structures Moses uses in his words. They go from one to another, often completely unique from those around it. And yet, they flow together harmoniously. Because of the tragedy the words convey, the majesty of how they are penned is so very easy to overlook. With these terrors duly noted, especially with them noted along with the calling of the Gentiles, while they are ongoing, the terror of the next words, which we will look at, 
take on a new direction. Bitter destruction and days of pain are our lot, as multiplying terrors are found on every side. Surely it is as if a terrible plot is waged against us until all have died. From without there is evil to slay any and all. From within there is terror at what lies ahead. Around all the people has descended a dark pall. The enemy attacks, wanting everyone dead. From where will come comfort and an end to this plight? When will the Lord relent and end this disaster? Only horror and terror come to our sight. Save us, O Lord, our God, and our sovereign master. Our second thought today is our hand is exalted. It's verses 26 and 27. Verse 26, I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. The word would is not correct. The first verb is perfect, and the second is known as a cohortative. In other words, the first verb is as if the action is completed, while the second expresses an intention to perform. It says, Amarti Afehem, I have said, I will blow them away. Here we find another word found only this once in scripture, pa'ah. It comes from a primitive root, meaning to puff. As such, it is then an onomatopoeia, meaning to blow away. One gets the sense of the Lord breathing in deeply and then rapidly exhaling. It was the intention of him to do just that. And in his anger at this disobedient nation, he exclaims that this is exactly what he will do. In this frame of mind, the dialogue marches on. Verse 26 continues, I will make the memory of them to cease from among men. Again, the first verb is cohortative. The Lord intends to do this thing. I will cause to cease from mankind, memory, them. This complements what was just said. The Lord says purposefully that he will blow the people away. It will be such a great and pronounced exhaling that they will simply be eradicated. There will be of them not even a memory of a memory left among humanity. The structure of this verse is a simple A-A parallel. I have said, A, I will blow them away. A, I will cause to cease from mankind, memory, them. Despite the adamant proclamation that the Lord would eliminate Israel, there is a caveat that will spare them. Verse 27, had I not feared the wrath of the enemy. Lule ka'as oyev agur. If not provocation enemy, I would abide. The words here are difficult and widely rendered by scholars, even if most translations are similar. The word ka'as is the same as in verse 32:19 last week. It signifies to provoke. Also, the word gur is used. It signifies to sojourn, reside, live as an alien, and so on. But at times, it is rendered as fear. Hence, most translations take this root. It is mentally easy to justify for the sake of the reader. But that does not seem to be the intent, even if it is the result. If the Lord were to blow away the people, he would have to live in the provocation of Israel's enemies for as long as man remained on the earth. Thus, there would be, in the mind of the enemy, the thought that the Lord was incapable of controlling his own people. Therefore, the idea would be that in his frustration at them, he decided to just entirely eliminate them. If this was the case, then what kind of a God would he be? This translation is then fully supported by the next words. Verse 27 continues, lest their adversaries should misunderstand. (laughs) 
The word misunderstand is just the opposite of what is stated, even if it may be implied. Pen yenakru saremo, lest should discern their adversaries. The meaning is clear. The adversaries see that Israel is destroyed. It is a fact that they have recognized. But this brings in all of the complications that could possibly come forth from such an event. The Lord established them, meaning Israel. He gave his word through them and to them. He brought the Messiah through them. But he also promised to keep them as a people and never break his covenant with them. On and on the thoughts would go. The entire fabric of the redemptive process up to and including the coming of Jesus and his promised return to Israel would suddenly and inextricably be unwoven. Just think of nations like Hitler's Germany or Iran of today. They have been or they are completely set on the destruction of Israel. It is their greatest desire and it is their deepest hope. With the destruction of Israel would come a defiling of the name of the Lord and an exaltation of the name of their supposed God. The Lord would have to live in their provocations. At this point in the Song of Moses, everything is centered on the fact that Israel, meaning the people, must continue, even though they have been as faithless as Hosea's wife. As these words are recorded concerning a time that occurs at the same time as the calling of the Gentiles, it is an absolute testimony to the fact that Israel was, is, and shall remain. Otherwise, the enemies of God would have an unearned right. Verse 27 continues, lest they should say, our hand is high. Penyomeru yadenu rama, lest they will say, our hand is exalted. The terrors described above included the sword, implying enemies who wield the sword. The Lord may use pestilence, famine, or other means, but to completely eliminate a group of people that is scattered around the whole world, in part or in whole, would require the sword to fully accomplish the task. If Hitler had prevailed, one can see him rejoicing and taking credit for what he was able to do. Likewise, if this came about today, it is absolutely certain that the adherents to Islam would take credit for the victory, and for the rest of time they would proclaim that their false god was actually the victorious and true god. The Lord could not, and indeed he cannot, allow that to occur. In the world, there would be a complete misperception concerning what actually transpired. Verse 27, does everybody see how important it is to understand the error of replacement theology? All you need to do is read the Song of Moses in its proper context, and you can see exactly what the Lord is saying. Verse 27 continues, And it is not the Lord who has done all this. Velo Yehovah pa'al kalzot, and no Yehovah who accomplished all this. The obvious meaning is, it is we who have destroyed Israel, and Yehovah neither had anything to do with it, nor was he able to stop it. We have prevailed, we are exalted, and Yehovah is not God, the Lord would have to abide in this. Any other options would be completely contradictory to his nature. In other words, and by default, the very act of him blowing Israel away so that they were eliminated from mankind is also completely contrary to his own nature. Israel, despite what they deserve, must stand. The words of this verse are set in an A-B pattern. A-B-A-B is how it is. If not provocation enemy, I would abide. That's provoking. And then we go down to the third clause. 
A again, lest they will say, our hand is exalted. That's provoking. Then we go back up to the second clause. B, lest they should discern their adversaries' discernment in the sense of not discerning. In other words, they discern, but they're not discerning, okay? And then B again, and know Jehovah who accomplished all this, not discerning. Who is great like our God? Who is he? Who does such great wonders and mighty things? Is there another so great? Can there be? No. To our God alone, all of creation sings. He has redeemed his people for his own, and he has kept them despite their constant falling away. Through this people, his fame has grown. Great is his name, and greater day by day. Who could restrain himself, as has the Lord, from destroying those who so callously turn away? But because of his faithfulness to his word, he has kept this people as his own to this very day. Our third thought today, their rock had sold them. It's verses 28 through 33. With the last section complete, a new idea is put forth by Moses. It is in verses 28 through 33 that the evident nature of Israel's unworthiness to be spared is detailed. As such, it highlights the fact that they are, in fact, spared. Verse 28, for they are a nation void of counsel. I disagree. The nation is a nation filled with counsel of the highest sort and of the most impeccable source. It is not that they are void of counsel. Rather, kigol obad esot hema, for nation devoid prudence, they. The word go or nation is usually used when referring to the Gentiles. However, they are here likened to any other nation. In fact, they are actually much duller than any other nation. That is seen in the word Moses introduces here. It is the word etzah, coming from a verb signifying advice. As such, it speaks of counsel, prudence, purpose, and so on. It is not at all that Israel lacked counsel. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had the Redeemer himself. And then came the apostles after him. They had miracles, signs, and wonders performed among them. And yet they had as much sense as that of a tree root, and maybe less. If God himself appeared among them, wait a minute, he did. And even then, they could not perceive it. They failed to recognize the time of their visitation. And to this day, they remain blinded. Verse 28 continues, nor is there any understanding in them. You know, before I go on, this past week, a week and a half ago now, a rabbi in Israel died, the most famous rabbi in all of Israel at this time. He read sacred texts and the Talmud and all that kind of stuff, 17 hours a day, every day. And he could not see Jesus. That is somebody that is devoid of understanding. That's all there is in this book is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And he couldn't see it. Millions of people went to his funeral. And all of them are following him and saying, what a great theologian, what a great scholar he was. He couldn't see the most basic thing to be seen in all of Scripture. <laughs> and know in them understanding. This is a parallel thought to the previous clause. Just as there is no prudence in their thinking, they are also devoid of understanding. Both words of this verse now are used in a single verse from Proverbs. It says in Proverbs 21, there is no wisdom or understanding tevunah or counsel et sa against the Lord. In this, counsel is fine because that speaks in relation to the Lord about a thought or action against him. 
However, here in Deuteronomy, it is speaking of the state of Israel having counsel, but not applying it because they lack the prudence or discernment to do so. One can see the parallelism. A.A. For nation devoid prudence, they. A again. And no, in them, understanding. Devoid prudence, no understanding. But this is not the Lord's fault. He has done everything to make it otherwise, even giving them the prophetic word to warn them. Verse 29, oh, that they were wise, that they understood this. The first verb is perfect. The second is imperfect. Lu hakemu yaskilu zot. If they were wise, they would understand this. In other words, they have their history, they have the prophecies, they have the promises, and they have the word of God to guide them. It is all recorded there, both the past and the future. What has happened isn't because they didn't have sufficient information, but because they have been unwilling to simply check out the facts. Every single Bible study that I have, I bet you I say it 4,322 times. I write it in almost every commentary that I write. Read your Bible. You can have all the information in the world sitting there on your table, and if you're not reading it, you are not going to learn it. You must know this word. I could be lying about everything I'm saying to you right now. I could be making up all of the theology I present you every Thursday night, and unless you know the word, you have no reason to say, Charlie is not telling me the truth. There's no discernment. With all of the information sitting right there in your lap waiting to be learned, please learn your Bible. A perfect example of their inability to discern is seen in regard to the coronavirus issue. All of the information one needs to know concerning what is going on is out there. But Israel was the first to jump into the proverbial pot, implementing mandates of all sorts. And they have continued to seethe in the boiling water as the spices have been added. They do not have the reason to grasp what is so painfully obvious. How much more ridiculous are they in regard to the weightier matters set before them? Verse 29 continues that they would consider their latter end. An important preposition, too, is overlooked. Yavinu le acharitam. They would consider, too, their latter end. The words are parallel to the previous clause, and they can be understood when combined with the opening thought. If they were wise, they would consider, too, their latter end. This is speaking of the nation. It is true that blessings are promised to them in the Messianic age, but that is clearly indicated as being preceded by a time of great wrath and destruction upon them. And they don't even need the New Testament for that one. This is evident from the words of Moses, the prophets, and Jesus himself. If they considered the time to their latter end, they would know that things will only get worse before they finally get better. But like sappy churches that fill the world, the focus is always, always always on the blessing, the good, the prosperity, and the favor. And yet this is only a very small portion of what God says belongs to Israel and what belongs to the church. The sadness of not considering what the word says to the people to whom it is directed, and indeed to the whole world, will fully, finally, and tragically be realized someday. It is an AA pattern. It's introduced with the words, if they were wise, and then A, they would understand this, A, they would consider to their latter end. As for Israel, the question is asked. Verse 30, how could one chase a thousand? How could chase one a thousand? 
It is the opposite and multiplied of what was promised to Israel as a blessing in Leviticus 26. Here's what it said, blessing Israel. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. Here, Moses indicates that the opposite is in store for Israel in the future. Asking it as a question implies that there is a fixed answer that is as obvious as the nose on one's face. But before he explains how it could be, he provides a parallel example. Verse 30 continues, and two put 10,000 to flight. Ushnaim yanisu revava, and two cause to flee multitude. It is another and greater multiplication. Where one will chase a thousand, a foe of only two will cause an entire multitude to flee. The word revava simply means a vast multitude, whether definite or indefinite. But how could this happen? Verse 30 continues, unless their rock had sold them. It is not conditional. It is a perfect verb preceded by a positive conjunction. Kitsuram mekaram, for their rock had sold them. The Lord gave them sure and great promises that he would be with them in battle and that they would defeat their enemies. But in a state of being sold, the impossible would come to pass. It speaks of an amazing defeat of the people because they turned from their rock. And then he sold them. Verse 30 continues, and the Lord had surrendered them. And Jehovah delivered them. Jehovah is clearly stated in parallel to the rock of the previous clause. The word here literally means to shut up or to close, but it figuratively means to deliver. When one is shut up, he can be delivered over. This is seen, for example, in the book of Amos, where the same word is used. The Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city. That word there, which actually means I will shut up the city. By shutting it up, it is now delivered. Everybody see that? And all that is in it. The amazing words show how far the people have gone from the Lord that the Lord would sell off and surrender the people. A-A-B-B pattern. How could chase one a thousand? And two, caused to flee a multitude. And then B, for their rock had sold them. B, and Jehovah delivered them. Verse 31, for their rock is not like our rock. Kilo ketsurenu tsuram. For no like our rock, their rock. Moses, speaking of the Lord, makes a comparison between the gods of the enemies and Jehovah. They are not at all like him. This is stated throughout scripture, such as from Isaiah 37. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. The contrast is absolute. Jehovah is God and all other gods are simply the work of men's hands or the imagination of their minds. With that stated, Moses next says, verse 31 continues, even our enemies themselves being judges. Ve'oyevenu pelelim, and our enemies judges. Many translations insert words here hoping for clarity. Others paraphrase what is said in an attempt to explain what is being said. But none that I found really explain what the meaning of the words must be. It is apparent that the clauses are parallel. In looking at it as such, the meaning may come forth. It was a very, very difficult set of words to consider. I have set forth 
two possible variations, either of which can be grammatically correct. The first one would be for no, the words for no, and then two parallel clauses. Like our rock, their judges, and our enemies, judges. Okay? So you've got an A, B, and then a B, A pattern within those clauses. The other one would be for no like our rock, their rock, and our enemies, judges. Okay? So it's A, B, B, A again, but the for no would belong to like our rock. It's very complicated. Either one is possible. I will now explain them. What appears to be the case here, and it is tough to be dogmatic, is that one of two options based on how the word judges is set is in parallel to the Lord, either in a positive or a contrasting parallel. If contrasting, it is saying that the Lord is their rock and their gods, meaning the nations, are no rock. Likewise, their enemies are not judges. It is the Lord who made the decision and both sold and surrendered them. The enemies actually had nothing to do with what occurred. I would prefer this. However, it could be a positive parallel. If so, then he is the true judge, and they are judges only because the Lord has allowed it. Said differently, Israel was sold by Jehovah to the enemy who then judged them. This makes less sense to me, but either way, the verses are set in parallel, and one of these two meanings seems to be the case. Nothing else that I've seen in any translation matches that, because they are parallel, and that's what's important. Moses is speaking in parallelism all the way through this. Verse 32. For their vine is the vine of Sodom. Ki megefen sedom gafnam. For from vine Sodom, their vine. It is debated who this is referring to. Israel or the Gentiles just mentioned. The answer must be Israel. Israel is compared to a vine again and again and again throughout Scripture, such as Jeremiah 2. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? Also, it is only they who are morally compared with Sodom and Gomorrah in the rest of the Old Testament, such as Isaiah 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Okay, Sodom is used as an example of destruction of other people, such as Edom. You're going to be destroyed like Sodom, but never a moral comparison, only a destruction comparison. That's what I'm telling you there. This is then given to explain the reason why the Lord sold them and surrendered them. That then leads to, verse 32 continuing, and of the fields of Gomorrah. Umish admot amorah, and from fields, Gomorrah. It is another new word. Shedemah, coming from Sadeh, or field. It is a field that is cultivated, and it should produce. However, what is produced by the vine and the field is next noted. Verse 32 going on, their grapes are grapes of gall. Anevemo inevo rosh. Their grapes, grapes, poison. Their produce of the vineyard is of no value at all, and in reality, it is harmful. The grapes here speak of the people's actions, the fruit of their conduct. Putting up with them is like drinking wormwood. Verse 32 continues, their clusters are bitter. Ashkelot merorot lamo, clusters bitter to them. This is the conduct of the people. It is a society filled with repulsive wickedness and perversion, as if they are carrying around entire clusters of inedible grapes. Think of Chuck Schumer. 
Think of Jerry Nadler. These people, they're a part of this society. And look at the things they do. It is all they produce because their vine and their fields can produce nothing else. It's an A1, A2, B1, B2 structure. For from vine Sodom, their vine. And from fields Gomorrah, their grapes, grapes of poison, clusters bitter to them. I hope you can see what I did there. Anyway, Moses is explaining to the people their very nature in the future and the reason why all the evils will come upon them. As such, they deserve the same punishment that Sodom and Gomorrah received. But more of their character is brought forth next. Verse 33, their wine is the poison of serpents. Hamat tanim yenam, burning of serpents, their wine. This means that their wine is that made of serpent's poison, which causes burning. The type of serpent, tanin, can only be guessed at. The word is used when speaking of things in the sea in Genesis 1 verse 21, and it is what Moses' rod turned to in Exodus 7 verse 9. It was obviously poisonous because Moses ran from it. Regardless of that, as wine is representative of a cultural expression in Scripture, it means that the entire culture is one that is just like the poison of serpents. It permeates everything about them as a people, flowing through them. Moses then further describes what the culture of Israel is like. Verse 33 finishes with these words, And the cruel venom of cobras, Ve'rosh petanim aksar, and poison vipers cruel. Here is a new word, peten. It is a venomous snake, either in the cobra or viper family. Due to the variety of vipers found in Israel, using vipers is a good possible translation. But there are also black desert cobras there as well. Regardless of the type of snake, the meaning is obvious. The wine, or the cultural expression of Israel, is that of a highly venomous snake. Taken together, the clauses are set in a simple AA parallel. Burning of serpents, their wine, and poison vipers, cruel. The words of Moses are the words of Moses, and the Lord inspired them. Hence, one cannot say that what is said here is not reflective of the people without denying that these are the true words of God. You know, before I go on, did anybody hear about what, uh, I'll mention it in the Prophecy Update next week, what they found in Israel recently? Teeny little thing from uh, remember Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim where they had the blessings and curses we talked about throughout Deuteronomy, okay? A guy has been there for quite a long time. He's been searching there and he found a little thing that actually takes their writing, their Hebrew writing back to the time of Moses, which before all of the dubious scholars said, oh no, they didn't have writing until this year, you know, like seven, 800 or even longer years later. And they found this. And it's actually about the curses of Deuteronomy 28. Okay, it's very small. It doesn't say very much. It's in a chiastic structure. So it is enough to justify the fact that they had all of what was needed to actually write the Torah in Israel. Just this past week or so, maybe two weeks ago, that was released. Wonderful stuff. As a general statement concerning Israel, they must be considered, these words, as a true accurate, and current description of them as viewed from the Lord's perspective. They have rejected their Messiah. They do not adhere to the word of the Lord, and they are filled with wickedness and self-righteousness. This is the Lord's word. I didn't say these things. He did. And yet, despite their state before him, he has kept them, and he will continue to keep them. The day is coming when they will again be his holy people. In the meantime, 
They have been handed over to Satan for what they rightly deserve. But as I remind you each week, they are simply a snapshot of us. We are his people, and yet we fail him constantly and in many ways. Despite that, just as his covenant with Israel stands, so his covenant with any who come to him through Jesus Christ stands. God, because of Jesus Christ, could no more reject one of his saved believers than he could reject his own son. The covenant has been cut, the blood has been shed, and the commitment has been made. Israel's failings will not nor can they ever negate the faithfulness of the Lord to his side of the covenant. Likewise, our failings will not, nor could they negate his faithfulness to the seal with which he has sealed us. Because of this, how much more should we be willing to live for him instead of following after the same failings that upset the Lord? If you are secretly caught up in adultery, you must consider your ways. If you are thieving from others, It is time to change what you are doing. If you treat your spouse with less than the greatest of respect, it is time for you to redirect your actions. These are things that the Lord looks disfavorably on. And why should we be recorded in the annals of history as being just like those of Israel, who have so greatly displeased the Lord? Let us do our utmost to live for God because of his great love with which he first loved us. May it be so, starting even today. Jesus himself, so much for replacement theology, Jesus himself said that he is going to come back to this planet under one condition. One. There are other conditions that he will come back under that are the Bible details, but Jesus specifically with his own mouth said one. Until you, Israel, say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until Israel does that. Until they say that to him, he is not going to return to this planet. He's going to come for us, and we're going to meet him in the air. We're not going to meet him here on earth. We're going to meet him in the clouds, as the Bible says. Okay, But for him to physically come back to this planet is up to this group of people. Everything is tied up in the word of God and the faithfulness of him to Israel. Everything. We are saved by grace and through faith. That's what the Bible says. There are no works involved. We are simply given a gospel message which says something very basic. As a matter of fact, Paul calls the gospel what elsewhere? I've asked this before. What does he call it? Stumbling block. Stumbling block is not this pulpit. If I'm walking down the road and I see this pulpit in the middle of the sidewalk, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk right around it. A stumbling block is this teeny weeny thin little thing where the asphalt is raised just enough for you to not see it and you trip over it. And that's what the gospel is. It's so simple that people don't get it. They just trip over it. Well, I need to do this and I need to do that. I got to go there and I got to do this. And that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is recorded in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4. Okay? It says Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. And it's all according to scripture. The Bible tells us that these are the things that Christ did that he was coming to do and that he actually did. And Paul says, if you believe that simple gospel message, Jesus died for my sins. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. He died for my sins. I accept that premise. Jesus was buried, meaning he was really dead and he was really in the grave with your sins. Everybody got that? Your sins are attached to Jesus when he went into the grave. What does it say in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 19 through 21? He made him who had no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
He became our sin. He went into the grave. And it says, Christ rose from the grave. Everybody got that? Well, if he didn't, if he had his own sin, he never would have come out of the grave because the wages of sin is death, right? He'd still be there. But if he still had your sin attached to him because he became sin who knew no sin, our sin is attached to him. If he still had our sin attached to him, he would not have come out of the grave. He'd still be there. Okay? So when he came out of the grave without any of his own sin, which he never had, and without our sin, which was imputed to him, then that means that there was no sin left. The sin is what remains in the grave. And there's nothing else that you need to do in order to be saved but to believe that. And you'll never be imputed sin again because that's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.19. He's not counting our sins against us. Therefore, if your sin is taken care of by Christ and you can't be imputed sin anymore, then you tell me how you can lose your salvation. It cannot happen unless the Lord isn't telling us the truth. And he also gave us, as we talked about earlier, the deposit, the guarantee, the aravon found in Scripture. That is our right to claim. You said that I was saved. You gave me the seal. I'm coming to claim my deposit. What the deposit signifies. I'm coming to claim what the deposit signifies. Everybody got that? This is the glory of what God has done in Jesus Christ. So I would ask you today that if you've never accepted the simple gospel of salvation, Christ died for your sins, Christ was buried, Christ rose again, do it today, please. It is that simple. It is that simple. And then after that, learn what the Bible says and do what the Bible says, okay? That's what he wants you to do is to become mature, responsible Christians. Next week, Deuteronomy 32, 34 through 43. Amazing words. And that ain't no jive. It's entitled The Song of Moses. Part 5. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 97th Deuteronomy sermon. Okay? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. The second part is actually more important now if you're saved. Yes, he'll do great things for you, but he also wants to do great things through you. You can't do that unless you know his word and you do what the word says, okay? If you do that, then he'll do great things through you. Please read your Bible. Okay, I've got a question. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, that was terrible. Okay, I've got a question for you. This is what I didn't do earlier. You've got to remind me to do this in the future. That was stressful. Right before we started, i got to think of a question. Now, where did I put it? Okay. Now, I don't want you to call out anything unless you can tell me why you're calling that out. Psalm 95 says, this is all it says, 95 starting with verse 1. There's no, you know, 72 of the Psalms say uh, a Psalm of David, a Psalm of Korah, a Psalm of Asaph, Psalm of Moses, Psalm of Solomon. This one says nothing, Okay. 95, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation, etc. Who wrote this song? And don't say the Lord because he wrote the whole body of scripture, but he did it through somebody. Who wrote this psalm? And tell me why. Nobody got this one. You didn't read or listen to my Romans commentary very well. Oh, I'm sorry, my Hebrews commentary. You didn't read my Hebrews commentary. We haven't done it in Bible class yet. In the book of Hebrews, this psalm is cited. And he says, David, David said, 
David said. So he ascribed it to David. God authored scripture, and so it is true that David is the author of this psalm, even though it's not signed here in the Old Testament. That's how you know. Nobody gets a flight on my YF-22 today, and nobody gets to drive this Maserati home. Uh, you can ring the bell. Yes, you can ring the bell. Don't ring my bell. Okay, we got a poem, and we'll take the communion. The Song of Moses, part four. I will heap disasters on them without haw or hem. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents of the dust, a horrid concoction. The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within, terrifying cares for the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said I will dash them in pieces right there and then. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men. Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand their thinking being amiss, lest they should say, our hand is high, and it is not the Lord who has done all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, as if from jackals they stem, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they would understand this, and wisdom they would spend, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them in their plight? For their rock is not like our rock who needs no nudges, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah through and through. Their grapes are sour gall, their clusters are bitter too. The poison of serpents is their wine and on the cruel venom of cobras they dine. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you. To us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the wonderful story of redemption that is found in the Bible and the faithfulness of who you are and what it means to us. Yes, we stray, we fall away, we do things we should not do, but if we have come to you through the shed blood of Christ, we are saved and we are saved with an everlasting salvation. Thank you for that. And thank you for your precious word, which guides us, that leads us, and that gives us hope in the times of trouble that we face. Lord, thank you for that. What a comfort it is. And what a joy it is to fellowship with other believers, either personally or through online. We're so blessed in this age where we can meet up with other people, even through the miles. What a wonderful treat it is, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you have done for us. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.